Expert Gold Radio Show, which shows you how to grow your business by leveraging your expertise. Now here's your host, Gihan Pereira, for this month's show. Hello, this is Gihan Pereira. Welcome to Expert Gold Radio for October 2012. The theme for this month is the publishing revolution. I have an interview with one of the leading experts in publishing, Dan Pointer, and also a discussion about how my co-author Chris Pudney and I wrote a book together. So let's jump right in with the conversation that I had with Dan. This is Gihan Pereira here, and I feel excited and privileged to be speaking with Dan Pointer. Dan travels the world speaking on book writing, publishing, and promoting, and I've known Dan for many years. Our paths have crossed a number of times in places as far apart as London in the UK, Edmonton in Canada, and the Gold Coast in Australia, which I think was the most recent time that that we met. Uh, Dan's the author of more than 130 books, and he's been publishing since 1969. He's a certified speaking professional, which is the highest accreditation level in the National Speakers Association, and his company, Power Publishing is based in Santa Barbara in the USA. So welcome, Dan. Great to speak with you again. Great to be with you, Gihan. It's It's been a few years since we've spoken, and I'd, I want to talk to you about what's new in the world of publishing, because you're definitely the world expert in this area. But let's start by asking you what's new in the world of Dan Pointer. What are you up to these days, Dan? Well, there's a great movement toward the ebook, and uh, we just finished the second annual Global Ebook Awards here in Santa Barbara. They were very, very successful. And we uh, simulcast them worldwide, so people in Australia and places uh, distant from here who uh, couldn't make it for the awards could see the whole thing. Personally, um, I've written 131 books, but those are all nonfiction, and right now I'm working on some historical fiction, which has me very excited. That's just my own personal thing. And um, people often say, well, fiction is different, and now I'll be able to comment on that, having been through the fiction as well as all the nonfiction. <laughs> well, actually, let me let me ask you a question about that. How are you finding it different, writing fiction versus nonfiction? I find what I'm doing very similar because it's it's important, whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction, to get all your facts straight. You've got to do the research. Mm. And the f- fiction that I'm doing is historical. I'm going back to 1940, 1942, and you know, everything has to be uh, perfectly accurate. Uh, you don't make things up. You can make up your characters, but you don't make up the places and the events and so on. So there's a great similarity between that and nonfiction. In nonfiction, of course, uh, you have to do the research as well. Yeah, right. And, and you said you've published 131 books now. That's, that's a lot. How did you get started in this area? Well, uh, magazine articles. I had a monthly column in Parachutist magazine for many, many years. The title of the com- column was Parachuting Pointers. Writing magazine articles, or today a blog, are great ways to collect material, work on your writing style, and establish a following, a readership. Then when your book comes out, you have a whole bunch of people who know you, like your stuff, and they are candidates to buy your book. One day, Gihan, I realized there was a great need for a technical book on parachutes. I also realized I had been collecting material for such a book because of my columns. I took those columns, I put them into chapter order so I could visualize the project, and then I determined what needed to be done, and I wrote future columns or articles on those subjects in order to fill in the blanks. Once you lay out your book, you can visualize what you have and what you don't have. This has a great stimulating effect. So take the materials that you have, put them into chapter piles, then stand back and see what's there and what is not there. 
go through your files. If you're a professional speaker, then take transcripts of your speeches, take your handouts, get a pair of scissors, cut things up and put them into those piles. Go through your file cabinet, pull out the photographs, the drawings, the um, pictures, the charts and things like that. Go through your the, the archives on your computer and pull out the, the pictures and the drawings and things and put those in the piles. Your first book is the greatest challenge. After that, hey, you've been there. You just have to do the same thing over and over again. Your second book and your third. Actually, I like the phrase that you use, Dan, your first book, because lots of speakers and experts and uh, authors in general think that they, they want to write their book. And they seem, uh, it seems like a huge project because this is going to be their life's work. But you, the way you described it was your first book. And then maybe that takes a little bit of the pressure off. Yes, you want to look at your book as a growing work. You're going to revise it every year or so, so it's always up to date, always current. And this is not going to be the first book that you write. It's for professional speakers. Do you have one speech that you do all the time? No, it improves. Do you have a second speech, a third speech? Of course, you have those for different audiences. So think of this as being your first book, and you are going to do more. There's another thing you mentioned, Dan, which I want to pick up on, because you mentioned it almost in passing, which is the idea that it's really powerful to have a, a network of people who are potential customers for your book before you even start writing it. And you did that through magazine articles, and I've heard other people say that as well. And I guess that means for us as experts, we do already have that because we have clients and audiences who are potential readers of our book. Absolutely. And today you can do the same thing with a blog. Uh, magazines are print. Print is history. Uh, electronic is what's is where we're going now, and blogs are electronic. So, just uh, when I say magazine articles, just think about uh, blogs today. Mm. So, would you recommend uh, that somebody starts with a blog now, even if they haven't started writing? No, I do not. I say, do not start a blog. Now, if you already have a blog, that's great. But if you start a blog, how many readers do you have? Zero. So you're spinning your wheels. You're you're <laughs> writing stuff, but nobody's reading it. Okay. Well, you're collecting material. No, what you want to do to promote your book is go to other people's blogs on your particular focused, narrow subject and comment on their blog and add things from your book and always sign your blog entry with your name, your website address, and the title of your book. The title of your book gives you credibility. You're a published author and you want to drive eyeballs to your website and that's why you put that URL in there. That's uh, that's a really interesting way of, of marketing because you're marketing with, with your authority as an author. That's right. I do another thing too. I have cards that are larger than a business card, about twice the size, pocket-sized cards. And on one side, I have a picture of the book and a picture of the author. And on the other side, I say a little something about the book and I tell where to get the book, like Amazon and Smashwords and so on. And I hand those out to people. So I have one book titled The Air Travel Handbook. And when I see somebody in an airport or on an airplane who has an iPad, a Kindle, or some other uh, e-reading device, I'll say, oh, you have an iPad, and you obviously travel a lot. You might be interested in this. And I hand them one of the cards. And the beauty of it is uh, it's really a small brochure, but it doesn't have to be folded up. It can be slipped into the pocket very nicely. So that's just another little technique. It's a little hard to do to approach people you don't know and hand them cards, but 
it's good for the book. Yeah, it certainly sounds very effective, and uh, I love the idea that it's a mix of the of print and with the cards, which are which are something physical, uh, and you're promoting things which are electronic. And I guess you've been in this business, Dan, for more than forty years now. You said you've been publishing since 1969. What do you think are the most significant changes recently, and how do they how are they going to affect us, especially experts, the professional speakers, trainers, consultants who want to get into publishing a book? Well, in the last 30, 40 years, printing has changed, writing has changed, typesetting has changed, and dissemination has changed. The hot news subject, of course, is ebooks. Mm-hmm. That is uh, one reason why we established the Global Ebook Awards. We want to bring attention to ebooks and to their authors. We want to give them the exposure and the notoriety they deserve. Ebooks are not just quicker and less expensive to produce, they're also much less expensive to transmit. Um, you're in Perth, Australia. I'm in Santa Barbara, California. I can get my book to you or you can get your book to me at the speed of light. We don't have to depend on the post. Mm. E-books, there's no printing, no inventory, no trucking, no invoice cutting, no wrapping or shipping. The author cuts costs and the reader gets the book at the speed of light anywhere in the world. So that is the, the major new change it's the what conversion over to ebooks and uh, taking advantage of all of the things that you can do with ebooks that you can't do in print. Hmm. And uh, but with both ebooks and printed books, it's become so much easier now to become a publisher. It's, it seems to be that there are these print on demand services, there are the ebook publishing services. And having a book in print always seemed to be the, uh, the, the way that an expert could demonstrate authority and credibility. Do you think that's still the case, or has that changed now that it's become so easy to, to publish, any, that anyone can publish? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because it's very important that you go through what we used to do. You still should. Uh, have an editor, you still still need a proofreader, you need a good cover design. Uh, the outside of the book has to sell the inside of the book. There are a lot of things that make it simpler, but you still have to put out a quality product. Uh, junk does not sell for very long, uh, regardless of your, your promotion. So, uh, I, I just, I don't want people to do things on the cheap. I want them to put out a quality product and I'm afraid that some people get into ebooks thinking this is a get rich quick scheme and they can sell it for whatever price and people are going to just buy it. Well, they don't buy it for very long because the word gets around and you get uh, one star reviews at Amazon and uh, you've wasted your time. So uh, put your time, your effort, your money into producing a quality product, which will be an ebook followed. Uh, a month or two later, by the P book, the printed book. Okay, so you recommend in that order. So do the ebook first, and then the printed book. Yes, because you can finish that ebook at six o'clock on Sunday evening, and then upload it, and uh, the next morning you're published. Now you compare that with uh, selling out to a large publisher, and it takes them up to eighteen months to get your book into print. Think for a moment how much of your nonfiction book is going to go out of date in 18 months. Uh, Can you imagine getting your book from the publisher and handing it to people saying, well, it's it's kind of out of date, but uh, there's still a lot of good stuff in there. Uh, You're apologizing for your book. With the e-book, you don't have to do that. Your e-book is always up to date because every six months or 12 months, you make some corrections and you upload a new version of it. It's um, you can always be proud of that ebook. Now, 
I'd also like to say that your ebook, once especially your first one, once it comes out, you'll see a few things you want to change or do differently. You'll find a couple of errors in it, and that's easy. You just make those changes and you upload it, and if you have a nice clean copy, then if you see that there is a demand out there, you can reset the type a little bit and then turn out a printed book, a P book. Now, for a professional speaker, you, you really need a printed book to promote your business. The printed book historically came out first. It was followed in a year or so by the soft, I'm, I'm sorry, the hardcover book came out first. It was followed in a year or so by the softcover book and maybe a few years later by the small, crummy uh, mass market paperback on the cheap paper and uh, so on. Today, a hardcover book still speaks louder than the softcover book, the audio book, the ebook, and so on. If you are a professional speaker or if you have a business and you want to uh, but show off your business, promote your business, a lot of big companies have their own book with their history and so on, then you really want to do a quality um, hardcover book. But you can start off with the ebook and then graduate to the, B, the P book if the market demands it. You mentioned earlier, Dan, that you can start with the ebook and get it out and publish it on Kindle and then maybe work with a, with a big publisher to get the P book out in 18 months. But you, you mentioned also that the other option is that you can publish the P book yourself. So, what are your thoughts about this, this self publishing or what I've sometimes heard uh, called indie publishing uh, versus trying to get published with a well known name? Okay, let's uh, set some foundation here. There are two reasons why people buy a nonfiction book. To learn something or to solve a problem. Gihan, have you ever heard anyone say, Simon & Schuster, I love their books. I buy all of them. <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> People look at a book on a shelf or online and they're thinking, will this book answer my question? Is this author a credible person? No, no one ever looks to see who the publisher is. Here in the United States, there are six major publishers perhaps 300 medium-sized publishers, and more than 100,000 small publishers. Obviously, we are in the majority. As I mentioned, it takes a large publisher 18 months to get that book from manuscript to shelf. Small publishers can do it in 24 hours. And so our work is fresher, and it's newer, and it's better material, and it's not out of date. And we're seeing... Um, we're seeing a market that's beginning to recognize that. I'll say something else about books in the United States. The large publishers, the big six in New York, about three years ago, started switching over to paper that's called natural stock. It isn't white paper. It looks almost like newsprint. And if you pick up a book from one of the big publishers from the U.S. and open it up, you will probably uh, look at that paper uh realize it just loses all credibility and put the book down. Uh, fortunately, I haven't seen this uh, scenario migrate to other countries, but it embarrasses me because I travel so much to see books in other countries and then think of the books that we have in the United States, which just look cheap. So as a self-publisher, you can maintain quality control and uh, you spend a penny or two more 
for decent white paper and make your book look good. Your book represents you. It reflects on your credibility. And I feel so sorry for professional speakers who go with a large New York publisher, and then when they get the book, it just looks cheap. And in effect, they're handing it to people saying, um, uh, here's a copy of my latest book. It doesn't look like much, but it's really good inside. It's just very, very sad when that happens. It's funny you say that, Dan, because one of my recent books that I published, and I self-published it, uh, I sent it to somebody who reviews a lot of books, and she said, look, this looks great. It looks like something that came out from a main, mainstream publisher. The, and the only way I could tell it wasn't was because the paper stock is too good, which is exactly the point that you were making. I did use some white, like some quality white stock, and uh, yeah, she was expecting it to be more that newsprinted. And you know, in in Australia, I don't think we've gone to the to the level of that newsprint. But certainly, even in Australia, the, the mainstream published books do have poorer quality stock. Thank you for sharing it. <laughs> <laughs> the the other thing you mentioned is about quality control, and I think it's ironic that in the olden days we would say that. Uh, working with the mainstream publisher means that you do get better quality control because they have the editors and the proofreaders and the you know the copy editors and the line editors and all of that and so you get a better quality product at the end but what you say now is that as a self-publisher you can still hire those people and you've got control over the quality precisely and the three main reasons to self-publish are to make more money to get the press sooner and to keep control of the product Mm-hmm. Let's let's talk about money because it's again something that you mentioned earlier, and I specifically want to talk about ebooks, Dan, because they are becoming popular, and even in Australia now they're becoming mainstream. I, th- I know they have been in the US probably for the last year, and I know in the past, before ebooks were popular and before uh, Amazon made ebooks mainstream, you could, if you were a speaker or a consultant, you could write an ebook and sell it for you know, I've seen people selling for fifty hundred dollars sometimes even more and that was great because they're judging it on their value and they could make significant money from that because they were creating something where there was no standard there was no benchmark but it now, it now seems that the market seems to have set the standard price of an ebook is 9.99 or sometimes even less so is that the end for us as professional speakers making you know that sort of significant money from ebooks or is there some other smart way to monetize ebooks Well, let's consider your motivation here. If you're writing your book because you want to help people or because you want to establish credibility, you're a professional speaker, then you need wide dissemination. Charging $100 is going to turn off a lot of people, and your book will not be read by very many people. So you're not going to get the word out. You're not going to get the credibility. Uh, $9.95 means more money for an author if you eliminate the publisher and eliminate the printing. So focus on your goal, not just the money. Uh, 9.95 really isn't bad if you're reaching hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah, okay, I guess that's right. I guess if you if you're doing your book for credibility and to build up your profile, that's the way. And I guess I was thinking of the the other speakers and experts who are you, who are creating things like special reports and and you know, there's more in-depth workbooks and handbooks. And I guess there is still a market for that, that people will buy after they've heard you speak or after they've engaged you as a consultant. That, that's a very different thing. Mm-hmm. Many of the people, well, we discovered years and years ago that if you put your book, a printed book, into a binder, a portfolio, you could get more money than if it were traditionally bound because it looked like it was worth more. It was um, a special manual or something. And uh, so I think people are are just um, 
transitioning to ebooks and they're charging more money, but that ebook for fifty or a hundred dollars doesn't look any different than the ebook for nine ninety nine. And it's just um the anyway, the perception is different. Um, maybe it means that as as professional speakers we accept the fact that nine ninety five is is a reasonable price and we just have to get the, the get the distribution. Yes. So let's talk about the distribution, Dan. How do you get an ebook when you publish it to a place like Amazon? Um, like you and I both know that that's just the start of the process. It's the start of the marketing, not the end of the marketing. It's easy to publish to Kindle. But what do you do after that? How do you promote the book and, and build a buzz around it? Okay, well, let's talk about distribution and then remind me about the, the promotion. Mm-hmm. I surveyed the 21,000 people who subscribed to my uh, Publishing Pointers newsletter. And I asked them, who is your major uh, dealer or outlet? Is it Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Amazon without the .com? Um, do you have a distributor such as National Book Network or IPG or one of the others? And the answer came back 82% Amazon. Mm-hmm. So they are the, what, de facto standard. They are reality. So uh, Amazon is the low-hanging fruit. Amazon can produce your ebook and your p-book, your printed book. Then we have smashwords.com. They will take your doc file, Microsoft Word, put it into eight different formats, PDF, LIT, Mobi, Pocket Palm, EPUB, Sony, Kindle, no charge. They put it up on their website, and when they sell one, they send you 82, excuse me, 85%. Mm-hmm. Um, so between Amazon and uh, Smashwords, you've covered the entire world. Smashwords also has deals with Apple and Google. There you have to give away a little more, but, hey, you've covered them too, and you didn't have to do any extra work or even contact them. What's very important for people in Australia, uh, for people outside the United States, is how do you get into Amazon? How do you get into Smashwords? Well, they want you. And uh, I was in uh, the U.K., and my girlfriend has uh, two uh, uh, CDs, uh, video CDs, uh, on um, animals, dogs and cats. She said, how do I get into Amazon? I said, geez, I'm not sure because I have a distributor and they take care of that for me. But why don't you go online? So you go online to Amazon, go down to the bottom of the page, and it says something like selling things. You click on that. You go to the next page, and it says, well, you can do it this way or that way. Which one do you like? Oh, I like that. It says, type in your telephone number. She said, what? Okay. She typed in her cell phone number, mobile number. And five seconds later, the mobile phone rang, and it said, type this number on the screen. Well, she did that. And then it said, congratulations, you're a vendor at Amazon. (laughs) That's how easy it is. Now, Initially, originally, some of these vendors in the United States required to have a U.S. bank account and a U.S. address, and that's uh, not required anymore. So uh, it means that you can live there in Paradise in Perth or Gold Coast, and uh, you can write books, and you can have worldwide distribution by tomorrow morning. And I can certainly concur with that, Dan. When I signed up with Amazon and Smashwords, uh, it was very easy to sign up. Uh, I did one extra thing, which was sign up with the IRS to make sure that Amazon and Smashwords didn't withhold tax. And that was just like it was talking to an IRS person somewhere in the U.S. and then filling in a form. But And that took a couple of weeks for that to get all sorted out. But it wasn't that difficult. And, yeah, I think that anyone around the world now can 
can get signed up with Amazon and Smashwords and have have that worldwide distributor for you. Mm-hmm. Now you want to talk about the promotion of your eBooks and PBooks. Well, at Smashwords, you can go into your own listing and then click on I think it's coupon code, and you have control of the whole thing. You can set the price on your eBook. But then you go into the coupon code area, and you can set the price there. And you can set it to zero. In other words, it's free. And there's a code. So then you can give that code to reviewers and other important people who can multiply your efforts. You never give away a book to anybody who can't multiply your efforts. All right. So last week here at the Global eBook Awards, Stephanie Chandler has a book called what, niche promotion or something like that. It's all about uh, promoting uh, books and other things. Excellent book. And so we talked to her, and she printed up cards with the picture of the book. It says, get your free copy. You turn it over, and it tells you the URL, the exact one for uh, Smashwords, where the book is. And you say, you just go ahead as though you were going to buy it. You type in this coupon code, and then you can download it free. Well, that's a great thing because you can go to conferences and you can hand out cards. You can send that coupon code to reviewers, um, to to bloggers, to people who blog on your particular subject. There are all kinds of ways that you can use that coupon code. So that's one valuable way. Now, here's another one. You go to Amazon. Remember, 82% of the books are the people who are selling more books at Amazon than any other place. Go to other people's books that are as close to yours as possible. Think to yourself, if somebody bought that book, would they be a good candidate to buy my book? And review their book. Write a review. Give it five stars. Say nice things about it. Always sign your uh, posting, your review, with your name and the title of your book. See, that title of your book gives you credibility. You're a published author. Oh, well, you've done the research. You've done the writing. You know something. Also, anybody who's reading the reviews on that other person's page see your posting and the title of your book. Well, they click over to see your book and to read about it. So that's kind of guerrilla marketing. You have now got a presence on their page, which is nice. Another thing to do is get your friends to write reviews for those other books. But to mention in their reviews, well, if you like this book, you'll love Gihan's book and the title of the book. And uh, again, you're, um, that's a little guerrilla marketing. You're getting your information on somebody else's page. In a, review, uh, in a, a search, their uh, page might come up first. So that's a great way to deflect the or guide the eyeballs over to your side. There are so many things that you can do to promote your book without printing anything, without mailing posting anything. You can do these things from home. It's very, very easy. Uh, it just uses a, uh, well, requires a little bit of imagination. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, and I, I love those ideas, Dan, especially the gorilla ideas. And that seems like nice ethical and simple ways to get some publicity around your book. Yes. What's, what's your thinking around the, the iPad and the iTunes store and this whole idea of iBooks, which I know is a completely different publishing platform, and they're talking about books with things like video embedded and very, very interactive books. What's, what's your perception about where that's going and where it is now? Learn them. Mm. Uh, the, I mentioned that I'm working on some fiction now, but the beauty of the ebook is that you're not confined to... What black words on white paper. 
you can do so much more. You can have URLs where people can click and go and get more updated information. You can add uh, YouTube URLs so people can go and watch a video on whatever you're talking about at that particular time. You can reference other websites. You can, um, of course, add pictures. Pictures cost nothing. Uh, all the pictures are in color. Uh, you can put in your own videos. There's just so many things that you can do to get your uh, word across to your reader. There's, uh, it's a, it, this is such an exciting time to be writing books. Um, I, you know, recently, people often ask me, how long does it take to write a book? Maybe I can hang by my thumbs that long. They're just not looking forward to it. But recently, in a five-week period, I turned out four books. Wow. It used, used to take a lot longer than that. But I've got a system. Uh, and I've done that, done this before. And I will admit two of those were updates and two were brand new, but still four books in five weeks. I was, I was amazed too. <laughs> that is amazing. But, and doing an ebook is, is so much more fun today because you don't have the typesetting that you had with the printed book. And, um, you, again, you could put in a YouTube URL. People can go out and um, see somebody demonstrating what you're talking about or uh, an explanation on that if they want to go deeper. It's just so much more fun, so much easier today. And, you know, if you're a professional speaker, you're uh, giving your audience as much information as possible, and here you're doing the same thing with your book. Dan, you've been, you've been so generous with your ideas and your insights and your time. Um, I know that you've written a number of books that help experts and professional speakers. Which of those would you recommend to us if we want to become published authors and want to publish even more? Well, that depends on where you are in your project. One is titled Writing Your Book. It's brand new. It's, a, it's the place to start because it covers the research and the initial organizational stages. You're gathering material. And like all my books, they're available at both Amazon and uh, Smashwords.com. The second one is called Writing Nonfiction. That takes you step-by-step step through the writing process. Uh, it gives you the whole layout for your book and so that all of your pages in your front matter and back matter are in order. There is a, a system, and you want your book to be laid out. So the quotation page, the title page, the copyright page, the title, uh, table of contents page, and so on. And if you don't follow this process or this order, then people in the book industry will pick up your book, look at it, and say, yeah, well, okay, kitchen table publishing, not ready to be a publisher, because you're just not doing it right. And uh, so that's what writing nonfiction does for you. And then uh, for promotion, we have the self-publishing manual, the volume two with the blue cover. Uh, that takes you through the whole publishing and uh, promoting of your book. Now, as I said, these are available at uh, Amazon and Smashwords. And uh, the e-books the e you can get at the speed of light. They don't cost very much. And the uh, print books are available from Amazon. Okay, fantastic. So the three I got were writing your book, writing nonfiction, and the self-publishing manual, which is volume two. So that's great because I'm going to go out and buy them as soon as we, as soon as we hang up, Dan, because they'll be fantastic in my library. Oh, I want, you, want to bring up something else, Gihan. You'll find that the first one, writing your book, it has front matter, it has back matter, lots of resources in it. But the text itself, probably 50 pages. It's not very long. You don't have to have a 300-page book anymore. And please, when you're finished getting your point across, stop writing. Don't just add fluff to the book. People don't want that. 
they're paying you money and they want to get the uh, latest information as concisely as possible. Uh, so don't underestimate this book. It looks like a regular book, but it doesn't take very long to read. And it's so important to uh, do the research and go through the initial stages on your organization. Yeah, fantastic. Fantastic. And uh, where can we get more information, Dan, about book writing and publishing and promoting? Are there any resources that you recommend, including your own, of course? Yeah, well, I want to, I'll tell you how to do this, but I'm doing it for two reasons. One, I want you to get the free information kit, but I also want you to think about your own website and putting information kits on your website. We send out just over 1,000 information kits every month. They're done with uh, autoresponders, so it's automatic. We don't have to handle them. But we have three information kits at parapublishing.com. Think parachutes and publishing. One is on writing, one is on production, and one is on promotion. So you get just the one, the information that you need. Each one is more than 20 pages, and they're very, very detailed on writing, on uh, production, or on promotion. So that's parapublishing.com, P-A-R-A publishing.com. Get the information kits. Great. Thanks so much, Dan. Again, thank you so much for your, uh, for your insights and your wisdom and and for being in this industry so long and keeping up with what's going on and helping all of us keep on top of the publishing world as well and this publishing revolution. Do you, do you have any last words before we finish up? I certainly do. <laughs> the most expensive parts of book writing are the mistakes. You don't have to make them. Get the books. Listen to broadcasts like this. Go to the conferences there are people out there who will answer your questions. It's so easy, and you will avoid taking uh, making those expensive mistakes. Dan Pointer, thanks again. Thanks so much for, from everybody who's listening. Gian, it's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dan. He really is a world-class leading expert. Now we'll turn our attention to the book Out of Office, which I wrote with my friend Chris Padney. And in this conversation, we talk about how we use a number of different online collaboration techniques to write this book. This is a slightly edited version of the full conversation that we had, which we published to our podcast. So if you want to listen to the full interview, visit our website, outofofficebook.com. We thought we'd talk about the process that we went through in writing this book. And... Part of the reason, of course, is because it's been an ex- exciting and interesting process for us, and partly because we want to share some of the online tools that we used. Even though we work in the work and live in the same city, there were some really interesting online collaboration, collaboration tools that we used, which I think would be useful for anyone else as well. Absolutely, and there were many of those collaboration tools are what we actually talk about in the book. So, collaborating out of office is also what we used to write a book. Yeah, exactly. Well, initially the idea came to me because we've been publishing uh, Focal Point for quite a while, and I was looking at some of the episodes that we've done, and a number of them were about working out of office, and I thought they were, I didn't have the title in mind at the time, but I thought that because you and I were both working out of office, and we'd done a number of podcasts about that, thought we had enough material for about half a book in those podcasts, and then we could fill it in with some of the others. So the, so the idea was to take some of the material we've already done and also write some ourselves. And for me, I, I really would 
I was looking forward to the idea of working together with you. I, I like writing, so it was that writing's easier for me than it is for a lot of people. And also gave me a chance to talk about the things that I do, my own work style, which a lot of people talk, uh, talk to me about and they, they admire it and say, I wish I could be as flexible and mobile as you and uh, work out of a backpack. And this is a chance to share some of the ideas to, to help them get to that level. Yeah, and I think my goals were similar here, huh? when you first broached the subject. Uh, I liked the idea of doing it with you because I knew, I knew that you had lots of experience publishing books. It was part of your work and your job. And uh, hopefully fame and fortune would follow that. So <laughs> it to be seen. Good luck with that. <laughs> but uh, our initial discussions were really about uh, getting a, an idea of who we were writing the book for. Who was our ideal reader? Was it going to be... Uh, someone like ourselves who are interested in telecommuting or was it going to be targeted uh, businesses and organisations from the perspective of allowing their workforce to telecommute and eventually we decided we'd focus on individuals rather than organisations and perhaps uh, that would be material for a second book uh, from the perspective of um, organisations and businesses that want their employee or want to allow their employees the freedom to telecommute and work out of office. But once we'd settled on that idea, uh, that clarity meant that we could easily work independently from each other, because that's exactly how we were going to do it, uh, without getting off track. And when we reviewed each other's work, we'd have uh, that target and goal in mind, and that would make that process more easy as well. I think this is really important, I mean, especially when you're collaborating, when you're working together with somebody else. I remember when I was first, when I was writing my first book, I remember going to a seminar where uh, it was by somebody who'd, ri- who'd written and published a number of books, and he said the first thing you have to know is who's your market and who's your ideal reader. And he was only talking about if you're writing a book yourself, but I think especially if you're collaborating with someone, having that really clear in our mind at the start um, makes it makes it really, makes a big difference to working together, because as you said, Chris, you could work, go off and work independently and we did spend quite a bit of time on that I remember we had um, not heated discussions but fairly intense discussion about that just to be sure who our ideal reader was so that we weren't both going off and writing books for, for different people that's right. Yeah, I remember those. And I think one of the initial, we'll talk about it then in the next section, but the model was, looked like it was a, a journey from working as a desk jockey all the way to what we call a digital nomad, which I was a bit uncomfortable with, and we reshaped it as you're about to talk about, Kihan, in the model. Yeah, in fact, that's a, that's a good thing to talk about next, which is the model. So we started by designing, and when I say model, it's like the big picture for the book. So in essence, we were designing the, the main chapters. Uh, and the way we did it, and the way I always like to put together presentations or books or anything I do, is to create some sort of model, which is a diagram, which is a diagram that gives people the big picture overview of the book. And uh, this turned out to be a three-by-three three model, so we had nine main chapters. And as you said, Chris, we started with this idea desk jockey, who's somebody who's stuck in the office, and then moving across to semi-commuter, part-time, which is a part-time telecommuter, then the e-worker, which is full-time telecommuter, and then the digital nomad, which is somebody who... Um, has the flexibility to work from anywhere. And that getting that model right at the start was also really useful. And we did we did spend quite a bit of time discussing it, modifying it, eventually agreeing on it. And that, that meant that it was fairly easy to split up the work based on that model. So after we had that model in place, we broadly said, well, here's who, like, we allocate a responsibility for each chapter. Yeah, so that was the point at which uh, the rubber hit the road and you and I actually had to start doing things. Uh, at that point, we'd been using Google Docs f- 
to share uh, documents like that model that you drafted, Gihan, and we'd met up a couple of times at UniClub, your favourite um, out-of-office venue, and of course we'd, we'd shared things by email, we'd uh, sent messages to and fro about uh, what we liked and disliked about the model, and as we regularly do our Focal Point podcast using Skype, we'd often um, have a bit of a chat after our, our, our podcast recordings about uh, our work on the book. So various collaboration tools that we're using there for sharing documents and for doing deferred communication, getting uh, the initial shape of the book in place so that we can actually start doing some writing. Yeah, which which we then went on to do, and I guess the as I, as I said at the start, some of the some of the book's content came from some focal point podcasts. Um, this isn't always the case, of course. Like if you're working together with somebody on a book, it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll have some material to start with. But we were lucky because we did have some. So we had so some. I think we had about ten or eleven uh, focal point recordings, some episodes that we'd done, which we thought here's some material for the book. So the first thing we did was we got them transcribed. So we went to Elance and. Got a got a transcriber. In fact, I've worked with somebody, Barbara, in Texas, who's done a lot of work for me in the past, and I just sent the work to her and said, "Could you transcribe these eleven podcast episodes?" And, and getting a transcript is literally just that: you just get the same words that we spoke, uh, but written out. So the transcript wasn't really in a form that would be suitable for a book. It could have been that we took the we took the transcripts and then massaged them so that they would read well for a book. And we could have done that, and I'm sure that some people do. But what we decided was to invest a little bit of money in a ghostwriter. So we had somebody to take those transcripts and rewrite them in a form that would look reasonable for a book. The couple of ways of doing this, and I know that... Different people have done this different ways. So one is you could just send that off to the ghostwriter and say, just come back with something, whatever you can do. But I think, Chris, both you and I are a bit perfectionist when it comes to writing and a little bit um, obsessed about style and style, I guess. And so we decided to actually put some work into giving the ghostwriter um, some guidance. So we started by creating a detailed table of contents. Uh, for the book. So we took our nine chapters and even broke it down into little sections within that and then went through the 11 transcripts that Barbara gave us and kind of cross-referenced that to the table of contents. So we just added little comments saying this section belongs in this part of the book. Uh, I also went to the trouble of drafting the introduction so that, and, the, and you had a chance to review that, Chris, before we pass it on to Justina, our ghostwriter, so that she could match our style. And then we, we sent all of that to Elance. So we put up a project on Elance, including the introduction, including a couple of the transcripts so people could, so the, the people bidding on it could see what sort of work would be involved. We put the draft table of contents there so they could see what we were aiming for. And we made it very clear that we didn't want somebody to write a book. We wanted somebody to write little sections of the book. And I think that helped because it, we weren't getting somebody who was going to bid on writing a whole book. We got somebody a little bit cheaper because she knew that she was just writing little sections and didn't have to come up with the finished product. Yeah, and uh, the finished product was pretty good. It took a lot of uh, heavy lifting off our shoulders. But as you say, we, we needed to massage that. And there were also a few gaps in the, in the book. So I think of those 11 transcripts and the nine chapters in our model, there were maybe three or four that were completely blank and we had to write from scratch. And so we divided them up between ourselves and got busy writing them. Uh, and rather than using one of these collaboration tools like Google Docs, 
to hold our master document, we used Microsoft Word, and you were the boss of that, Gihan. Uh, and I was a little reticent to do that at first because this was a book about collaborating online, and I felt we should practice what we preached. And uh, But I think the problem was that Google Docs doesn't have all the, the styling tools that... Um, Microsoft Word has, and we really did need those those finishing touches applied to the book. So we used I used Google Docs to share individual snippets with you, but ultimately you merged them into a master document in Microsoft Word. Yeah, and I think we tried it, didn't we? We, we thought about doing everything in Google Docs and then copying and pasting into Word, but we found that when we did that, for some strange reason, Google Docs didn't manage styles very well, so it would have meant going through and editing every paragraph to match a style later rather than just doing a like a search and replace of all the styles uh, at the end. That's right. Google Docs seemed to have its own set of styles, and that would have made it hard to merge them with another document that had Microsoft Word styles. So we went with Microsoft Word, and it worked out pretty well. You had to do all that, uh, that merging, Gihan, so it was easy for me. Comment there. I think that if you are working together and you're not going to use a collaborative tool like Google Docs, uh, so exactly what we did, so we decided not to. We had to have something like Word. Just make sure that you make a decision about who's going to have the master version. So, as you said, Chris, I'm the boss of you. <laughs> no, I was the boss of you. Um, but we made a decision that I had the master version, which also meant a bit, of, bit more extra admin work on my part, but it meant that we never got into the position where we were both had two versions of the Word document, or so our, our own versions of the Word document that we were editing and then they got out of sync. So you had to work a little bit harder because you couldn't make your changes directly into the document and I had to work a little bit harder because I had to then take your changes and and add them to the document. But by having one master version rather than two that we were sharing, it it just made it... We didn't have the problem with mistakes about overwriting old versions. Uh, So if you're not collaborating on one document in the cloud then decide who's going to control the master version. Yeah. And so because we didn't have a a master document in the cloud, the way that we worked around that was to use another sharing tool called Dropbox, where once you had a a draft ready for my review, for example, you'd make it available via your Dropbox account, and then I could pick it up and go through and and review it. So so eventually we had pretty much a complete draft manuscript. So we had all the text in place and it was time to start revising it. And so we've gone through several uh, revision passes. And as I said, we, you would share that document with me in uh, using Dropbox. And then what I'd do is I'd go through that document and then there was a revisions document which we did share in Google Docs. And I would uh, list all the changes and edits that I thought were needed in that document, which you would be able to access, and you could pick up and make those changes to the master document. And then after every review or every couple of reviews, perhaps, we'd meet face-to-face just to make sure that we were happy with uh, the process and work out what we were going to do next. And in addition to making our own reviews and revisions to the document, once we we were getting close to what we thought was the final draft, we made the mistake of, no, it wasn't a mistake, in fact, it was a fantastic idea. What we did was we asked uh, families, friends and colleagues to review our manuscript. Again, you shared it via Dropbox. And we got tons of feedback, really good feedback. We asked people like my mum, who's very much uh, uh, an internet neophyte, 
but is very pernickety about style and punctuation and grammar. So a lot of my mother's feedback was very much based on those kinds of things, as well as uh, a guy like Jimmy, a friend of ours, who's a fellow computer science graduate and works with the internet on a daily basis and is very familiar with the kinds of tools and concepts we were discussing. And so his feedback was very much focused on the content rather than the style. So we had lots and lots of useful feedback on everything from style to content. And as a consequence, we had lots and lots of changes that we needed to make. So uh, there was another set of rounds of revisions that, again, we used Google Docs to share those, uh, those reviews and revisions that we were making. Yeah, and no, I've written a number of books, Chris, and this is the this is actually quite new to me, uh, handing it out for review so early in the process. Uh, I've done it a few other times, but usually when I've got pretty close to the end and I'm just looking for proofreading or final comments, and to be honest, uh, and I think you made this comment as well, I thought we were pretty close to the end. When yeah, the I end. think we, we, we thought we were getting near the end, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, We thought right. it was like final proofreading, but as it turned out, uh, we weren't as close to the end as we thought. Yeah, it did take a bit of time, but I'm so grateful that we did that. And as you said, we've, we asked a range of people. Uh, I asked some clients who were perhaps interested in the digital nomad lifestyle. I asked my friend Ruth, who works in a, in an organization, in a company, so she might be interested in that semi-commuter lifestyle. Uh, we asked a couple of other people who were from you know, our target market, our ideal readers, but people from a range of different uh, perspectives. And as you said, like your mum, uh, her edits were the most difficult, so she was the most painful to deal with, <laughs> but really the most valuable, partly they were the, one of the most valuable as well. So I found it really useful to go through and make all of those really detailed changes. And we, you know, we didn't use an editor or proofreader or people that some people would use. If you go to a publisher, you might have the services of editors or proofreaders. But we had just such brilliant reviewers and such brilliant reviews that it was worthwhile doing it that early. And as a result, the book is so much better now. So... That means we are getting close to publishing the book. And other things that we need, other than the stuff that goes between the covers, is the actual cover. So, again, we went out to Elance and uh, put out a, a project to work on and design the front cover and back cover for our book. And uh, we got a lot of uh, bids, didn't we? Over 20 or so, which we reviewed. And you also invited one of the... Um, one of the guys that you'd worked with for covers of previous books to put in a bid. And we narrowed it down to two, uh, one other guy and Manoj, who's done work for you before. And we made the mistake of not choosing Manoj initially. initially. Uh, yeah, my, that's my fault. I really should have said, okay, Manoj has done some great work for me in the past. I want to reward loyalty, so we should have just gone with him. But just for the sake of trying somebody different, we did. And as you said, that was a mistake. <laughs> yes, yes. So uh, after some initial uh, initial failed attempts at getting uh, this other contractor to produce something that we liked, we switched to Manoj and uh, started uh, making good progress. Uh, but rather than just cancelling the project with this initial guy, we thought we'd just let it sputter along and, and see if he can actually start producing anything valuable. But in the end, he actually pulled the pin and there was no great loss. Uh, and as a consequence, we have a, we're getting close to a final great design for our front and back covers from Manoj. Yeah, and I think that's one of the risks that you take with Elance. Uh, and we knew that 
sometimes elancers can take a while, even people that you've worked with before, because they've got lots of other projects and they may just be unavailable. So we actually started the book cover design process uh, with plenty of time in hand. And so I'd recommend it as well. And as it turned out, that was very useful because two weeks into the three-week project initially with that first provider, we decided, no, this is no good. So we went to Manoj. And I, th- I thought that was a very clever idea of yours, Chris, to say let's let's actually work with both of them, given that we'd committed to one of them already. And let's see who comes up with a better design. But as it ended up, the first provider was no good, and so he cancelled. And we got our money back. But we we could have continued if he'd been reasonable. We could have continued and had two, two goes at his. Yeah. Um, what else? Well, I guess with the back, the back cover, again, uh, the blurb that we wrote for the back cover, we, we wrote it reasonably late in the piece, but it is one of the things that some people recommend that you write the back cover blurb early so that, especially if you're working together with someone, then like you and I, Chris, could have discussed what we were going to put on the back cover and that would have helped solidify our idea of the target reader and what, what angle we were going to take with the book. Uh, but we wrote it reasonably late and I drafted a version which you reviewed and had a couple of comments on and then we sent it off to Manoj and he's done a pretty good job of putting that on the back cover. Sorry, you can say something, Chris? I, I was going to mention the fantastic testimonials from Ian Berry and Ian Hutchinson. Yeah, absolutely. That was one of the things that another side benefit of sending it out for review first. Uh, so we're getting close to publishing, Chris, and I'm hoping that in the next couple of weeks we actually will be sending it off to a printer. Uh, so I guess we should we should make the point that we are going to publish it in both print and ebook formats. I don't know whether you ever thought about whether we'd have an ebook version or whether that was always going to be on the cards. What did you think? Yeah, I think we did. I think that was part of the plan. And I, I guess when it comes to publishing the ebook version, there might be a little bit of redrafting. I think you, you've mentioned that the formatting for an ebook is quite different from a paginated print book. Yeah, it is, absolutely. So there is a bit of work in creating the two. It's not as simple as just saving it as a PDF file and saying, here's the ebook. Actually, you can do that, but there are other formats that Amazon requires and uh, Apple requires to be able to read them comfortably and conveniently on things like tablets and iPads and phones and things like that. So with the print version, we're going to use Optima Digital, which is a local Perth-based company that I've used for printing my books in the past. We're probably going to do only a very small print run, and that means it's going to cost us between $10 and $15 a book. But we kind of budgeted that when we created a budget right at the start. We probably should have mentioned that, Chris. I, I gave you an estimate of how, how much money we'd have to spend for the whole process. I think it was probably a slight underestimate, but it wasn't too too badly off, was it? Over budget and over time. <laughs> exactly. That's, <laughs> that's how I always like to work. <laughs> uh, but it's going to end up being reasonable, a reasonable cost. So if we, let's say we print 100 books, it's going to cost us about maybe $1,200, so about $600 each for, for the printing. So for 50 books, with 50 books each. Sounds good. Okay, so the other thing that is interesting in the way that we've gone through this process is we've done some promotion beforehand. So we did set up a website. We set up the outofofficebook.com website, which is actually a WordPress blog, uh, months in advance. So I can't remember how long we've had it, Chris, maybe about six months. Yeah. Do you think six months? Yeah, I reckon. Yeah, okay. And we have been publishing regularly to that blog. So we've had six months' worth of blog posts. So every two or three weeks, we publish a blog post. Some of it may be an extract from the book, so just take an article, or take something from the book, convert it into an article, and publish it to the blog. And some of it is just stuff that we've come across as we've done our research, or just in a normal in 
their normal workday. So there have been videos from YouTube and TED.com. There have been cartoons that I saw you published, a Dilbert cartoon recently. So we've just been keeping that website alive so that when we publish the book in a few weeks' time, it won't look like an empty blog. There will actually be activity on there. We've even set up a MailChimp subscription form so that people can subscribe to the newsletter so that we've kind of tried to be building up activity beforehand. And I actually like that approach better than what I've seen some other book publishers do or book authors do, which is in the weeks leading up to the book, they send out a number of emails or tweets saying, hey, the book's coming out, look out for it, or a big surprise, or there's going to be a 10% discount if you buy now, which is all promotional. But what we've been doing is providing content, and we hope high-value content, leading up to the book launch. Yes, and in addition to that, we've been exploiting social media very gently. I've seen that uh, you mentioned uh, the Out of Office Book website on Google+, and I've also mentioned it on Facebook. So we've been spreading it amongst our circles of friends, to use the Google Plus terminology. Yeah, and can I just say that one of the reasons we can do that is because we do have the website. Yeah. So right. we've been mentioning it like I mentioned it, I put up a video about Arthur C. Clarke and how I predicted how we'd all be digital novads by now. Uh, one of our mutual friends, Matt Hearn, mentioned the Out of Office book, and it just gave us a chance. And actually, Matt kindly re- linked to the website as well. So because we had a website, we didn't just have to mention the book, but we could send people to the website as well, which we were really comfortable doing because we weren't trying to sell anything at that point. It was just a free resource. That's right, Yeah. And, of course, we've mentioned it uh, a couple of times in the the Focal Point podcast as well. And then just uh, old-fashioned social media, our our family and friends are aware that we're writing a book. We've been telling them that we're working on a book together, so they all know that uh, that's going to be coming out soon, and they're waiting with bated breaths for their next Christmas presents. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I'm sure they'll be very happy with that. (laughs) So any last thoughts before we finish, Chris? Yeah, well, let's wrap it up, Kihan. I was going to say that um, collaborating on the book was really easy and cheap because we were able to use the collaborative tools that we talk about in the book. All this Web 2.0 technology has made that really easy. We haven't had to pick up the phone or write letters or meet face-to-face to work together on the book. We've been able to use Google Docs and Dropbox and good old-fashioned email and Skype uh, to work on this book together. So that's made it easy and it's made it cheap. But probably the most difficult aspect has been the actual writing. I know that you're uh, comfortable writing, Gihan. You've done a lot of it as part of your work. But it's it's something that I found was hardest. Um, So I made sure that I, every day, every work day, that I would spend some time on the book to make sure that I got through it and got something done and was productive. And then the revision process has taken quite a while because we found that we had more revision to do than we expected. Um, And... You know, revising revising means looking carefully at the book, thinking hard about it, and and revising it. So that's probably taken uh, longer and was harder than I anticipated. But some of the early heavy lifting, which would have been tedious and time-consuming and probably would have meant I wouldn't have wanted to do the book at all, that was the transcription services and the initial massage that we got done by Elance contractors. A lot of that sort of got got the book off the ground uh, quicker and more easily than otherwise would have been the case. Yeah, I think you make an interesting point, Chris, about your discipline around writing and the, the 
the strategy that he chose. In fact, one of the points we make in the book is judge, ask your manager to judge your results when you, when you're out of office. Uh, judge you based on results rather than time spent and maybe even what hours you work. And, uh, I think this is a perfect example because you said that you worked on the book every day. I didn't. So my approach was to set aside large chunks of time when, which I set aside to work on the book. So it meant that I wasn't working on it every day, although I might have spent as much time per week on it, whereas you decide to spend time every day. And until now, I didn't even know that that was your strategy, but, uh, or that was your discipline. But I think that's, that's something that you find when you're working out of office, that you're the two people working together on a book can work on it at their own pace, at their own time, um, in their own time of day, and uh, at whatever in whatever way suits them best, as long as they're really clear about deadlines and what you're working towards. So I think that made a big difference, the, the fact, or made a big impact, the fact that we were both working on it independently, but we were pretty clear about our deadlines. But I, but I do think that part of that was, like I really, initially when we started the book, I thought, okay, the, the outsourcers, the, the, the transcripts and the ghostwriting uh, would do most of the work for us. I thought it would do at least 50% of the work, and I think it's probably end up doing about 20 to 25% of the work. And um, sure. in a way, I'm really pleased that we've put so much effort into this book, Chris. I've written a number of books, and this is the one I probably put the most work into. Okay. It's been, but it's been really enjoyable because I think the, the end result is going to reflect the amount of work that we put into the book. Fabulous. Do you want to work from virtually anywhere? The internet makes it possible. And the book Out of Office shows you how. Get your copy at outofofficebook.com and get more convenience, comfort and freedom in your work life. I run a members-only webinar for the eGurus community every month. This month's webinar is about how to put together a radio show. In fact, I'll be going through in detail how I put together this show, Expert Gold Radio. I'll talk about how to find guests, how to do the interviews, and how to publish the radio show on the internet. If you're an eGurus member, join me on Wednesday the 23rd of October for this webinar. If you're not a member, I'd love to have you join. You pay $50 a month and you get access to me and many of my resources. Are you a speaker, trainer, coach, consultant or thought leader? If you'd like to use the internet to get more business or deliver your material, join the eGurus community. Find out more and sign up at eGurus.info. So that's it for Expert Gold Radio for October 2012. Hope you enjoyed the show and learned something that you can use in your business. Thanks to the beautiful Sharon Kerwood for helping with the voiceovers. Look forward to having you join us again in November when we'll be talking with Matt Church about the importance of positioning. Have a great month. You've been listening to the Expert Gold Radio Show. If you'd like to subscribe to the show, read the show notes, or leave your comments, visit expertgoldradio.com. And remember, great minds don't think alike.